It's historical time. I've quoted Napoleon on this show before, and it bears repeating. Napoleon once said that history is a set of lies agreed upon. Napoleon Bonaparte was pretty handy with what the French would call Le mot juste. In his lifetime, he uttered quite a few bangers. Never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. In politics, stupidity is not a handicap. Quantity has a quality of its own. Bonaparte laid down some pretty thick truth. And he was very correct about history being a set of lies agreed upon. History has surprisingly little overlap with the truth. What's more important is who controls the narrative. And I've said before that it doesn't matter what the actual events were. It's whoever has the most dominant narrative of those events who gets to decide what will become history. Usually, that narrative is decided by whoever is left alive when the story ends up being told. To quote the video game Hitman, The pen beats the sword, huh? I have found that whoever wields the sword decides who holds the pen. Underrated script in that. And by dusk of Sunday the 18th of June, 1815, it was Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, who was holding the pen, not Napoleon Bonaparte. This might be the reason why history is a tad unkind to Napoleon. At the end of the Darius the Great show, I mentioned how what we call history is, more often than not, who has the most dominant narrative. And at the very end of the show, I used the example of Napoleon. I got everyone to imagine what they knew about the man, to try and picture him in their mind's eye. And then I mentioned that Napoleon was comparatively tall. Did that blow any minds? Alright, okay, maybe that's too strong an expression, but you get the idea. I may have gilded the lily somewhat on that. I do that from time to time. Napoleon would never have been considered tall. But nor was he particularly short. He was very much in the average height range for the time. He wasn't exactly the Danny DeVito type figure that is often portrayed in popular culture. Anyway, I started blasting. Bah! So how did we get here? How come everyone, when they picture Napoleon Bonaparte, everyone has the same Looney Tunes caricature in their heads when they picture one of the most successful generals of all time? Well, as you might expect, it's a little bit complicated. Je suis Napoleon! <laughs> no, seriously, I'm not. First of all, it's in the measurements. When Napoleon came to power, and for a good chunk of the century either side of that, France was going through a bit of an emo phase. To this day, they have a national holiday about violently storming a prison, and their national anthem refers to irrigating the fields with the blood of the bourgeoisie. I want everyone to know that I nailed the spelling of bourgeoisie on the first try, so mum, you'd be proud. During this emo phase and all of the political upheaval that went with it, France decided that they were going to break with the rest of the world, and they came up with their own measurements for things. No more foreign nonsense for them, like farthings and cubits. They were going to invent their own nonsense. They even came up with their own calendar, which I won't get into, but it is worth a cheeky Google, the French Republican calendar. 
it's pretty cool. They have a month called Fructidor. So the French came up with their own measurements. They still had inches and feet, but they were French inches and French feet, and they'd be damned if they were going to be the same as anyone else's. So a so-called Paris inch was a bit longer than the inches you got in the rest of the world. A Paris inch was 2.7 centimetres, an imperial inch is 2.5 centimetres. So when it was reported that Napoleon's height was 5 feet 2 inches, that's using French measurements. In actuality, it was about 5 feet 5 inches. Short for today's standards, but well within the mean for Napoleon's own time. This conversion is often left out of history, and is often left out of history intentionally. In reality, Napoleon was about the same height as Zac Efron. What was it like to kiss Dwayne Johnson? Absolutely amazing. He's perfect. Another reason that Napoleon was considered to be freakishly short was because of the company he kept. Napoleon's bodyguards and his honor guard were grenadiers. Grenadiers were sort of like a special forces unit back in the day. These guys were jacked. A requirement of being in the grenadiers was to be freaking huge and to be able to hurl things like grenades a long way. And when I say grenades, I don't mean like grenades we have today. We're talking like the Yosemite Sam Daffy Duck style round black bomb with a fuse in it. That's, that's what a grenadier would be throwing. So you needed to have quite the arm on you. No good bushwhacking barracuda! And when Napoleon was out and about with his bodyguard, consisting entirely of 100% units... The best of the best of the best, sir! <laughs> with honors. In that company, you're always going to look short. Go and stand next to the forward pack of the All Blacks and see how tall you feel. You're going to come up, well, short. Unless you're Argentinian. Topical! And the last reason that we think of Napoleon as short is just straight-up jingoism. The English absolutely hated Napoleon. They still do. In my experience, you cannot trust any Englishman, even historians, to be the slightest bit objective when it comes to talking about the French. And that only gets worse when talking about Napoleon in particular. There's a real cultural blind spot there. And because the British were at war with Napoleon, it was in the interests of the British to make Napoleon out to be a, a comical figure, a tiny little man-baby who's trying to conquer the world out of some sense of trying to compensate for some other part of his anatomy. And the British made all of these comics and cartoons because literacy wasn't great back then. You needed to put it in pictures. And they always displayed Napoleon as this tiny little man trying to overcompensate. And that propaganda was devastatingly effective. There was an English cartoonist by the name of James Gilray, and he was one of the most prolific francophobes, and his jingoistic comics captured the imaginations of the English during the time of Napoleon's conquests. And that sort of became the mimetic collective subconscious image of what Napoleon was within the culture of the time and even lasting until today. Napoleon himself said that the comics of James Gilray, and I'm quoting Napoleon here, quote, did more than all the armies of Europe to bring me down. Those comics were that effective. And the upshot of all of this is that 200 years later, Napoleon is considered to be almost a bumbling midget in the public consciousness, a man who built an empire essentially from scratch using little more than his own strength of will 
is derided as a sort of like a Trumpian figure almost. What's the difference between a wet raccoon and Donald J. Trump's hair? And that's the power of controlling the narrative. It doesn't matter what you did. What matters is how people tell it, how that story is repeated over and over through time. The show I'm doing today is kind of reactionary. Something done set me off, and I needed to get my Andrew Bolt on. I hadn't planned to make a pun on Boltons there, but here we are. And then I debated the merits of doing an Andrew Bolt-style rant, and I back and forth for a while, and eventually I came to the conclusion that, damn it, this is my show, and I'll be reactionary if I want to. So here's the take. There's a lot of bullshit out there in the world at the moment. A lot of people are slinging a lot of lies without even the faintest attempt to back them up with truth. And a lot more people are buying into it. So here's my knee-jerk reaction to that. And to get you guys thinking about what we take for granted as fact, and just how little actual fact actually matters, that history is, dare I say, lenticular. They say that truth is the first casualty in war. Truth is definitely the first casualty in history. And the only thing that really gets remembered is whoever has the dominant narrative. So today's show is going to be about that. Which means it's going to be kind of like a montage show, a clip show. A Rick and Morty interdimensional cable episode. We're going to go to a few places here. There's no one overriding topic. In bird culture, this is considered a dick move. But I'd like to begin by addressing the incident that triggered me. I heard someone say something that wasn't just fundamentally false, but that they were parroting a narrative that was deliberately pushed to hide the truth, to obfuscate the blame. And this particular lie, I've, I've heard a lot of people repeat this particular lie. But what really set me off was the fact that the person I heard repeating it was a teacher. Someone entrusted to gift children with the power of learning was parroting this falsehood. And I thought, this will not do. I'd like to point out too that I, the person involved in this did not know the true story here. They're just repeating the face value lies and bullshit that has come down through history. I don't think there's any malice aforethought here but the result is ultimately the same. This person was talking about frivolous lawsuits and today's overly litigious culture. And to illustrate their point, they brought up the fact that somebody successfully sued McDonald's because they burned themselves on hot coffee. Haha, <laughs> how ridiculous, stupid person burns themselves and wins the idiot lotto. Woe to the world, pine for bygone days, sad clown face, closed curtain. I mean, we've all heard that story, haven't we? Everyone's heard some variant of that. And everyone's heard something that was fundamentally incorrect. Not only did the actual events not occur anything like that, but that particular narrative, the one where the idiot does something stupid and manages to con a corporation out of millions of dollars, that narrative was invented and disseminated by McDonald's themselves in order to stop people from thinking too hard about their cutthroat business practices. This teacher had not only swallowed the bait, but was regurgitating it to the young. 
On February 27, 1992, 79-year-old Stella Liebeck from Albuquerque, New Mexico, I knew I should have taken that left coin at Albuquerque, bought a cup of coffee from a McDonald's drive-thru, and she gave herself quite the scolding. Have you heard the extra part of the story about how she was so stupid that she tried to put milk in her coffee while she was driving? I mean, what a dumbass, right? Sometimes that part gets left out for brevity, but I've never been one for brevity. So the story goes that she was driving along, trying to put milk, or cream, I guess. I confess that I have no idea what Americans are talking about when they say cream. But she's trying to put some form of dairy in her coffee while driving, and it explodes all over her lap because she was trying to do too many things at once, and somehow, through the process of the law, this is all somehow McDonald's fault. Oh, what a state the world is in. Only, Stella Liebach wasn't driving. She was the passenger. Her grandson was driving. And out of courtesy and common sense, he pulled over to allow Stella the opportunity to open the lid of coffee and mix in her creamer and sugar. She put the cup of coffee in her lap, and she tried to pry off the lid. As she did, the whole cup jerked, and Stella Liebeck spilled the boiling hot coffee all over herself. The coffee soaked into her pants, and the damp fabric held the boiling liquid against her skin, causing third-degree burns to her thighs, buttocks, and groin. Stella was taken to hospital where she underwent surgery. All up, over 16% of her body was burned. She required skin grafts and was left permanently disfigured and partially disabled. Haha, <laughs> still hilarious, right? The particular McDonald's that Stella went to was known to serve their coffee extra hot. 20 degrees hotter than any other store in the state, as it turns out. This proved disastrous for Stella Liebeck. The reason that McDonald's as a franchise kept their coffee at a certain temperature, 20 degrees below what this store sold it at, was because keeping it at that temperature slowed the time it took for skin to receive third-degree burns. At that temperature, the supposed temperature, burns occurred after 20 seconds instead of instantly, which gives you time to react. This particular Macca's, though, they liked to sell their coffee extra hot because it meant that they didn't have to brew it as often. This was a clear breach of occupational health and safety, just for the purposes of saving a few cents a day. Incidentally, I'm permanently crippled because of a company's similar attitude to safety, so I'm not exactly objective on this. So when Stella Liebeck opened her coffee and spilled it on herself, she was permanently disfigured and left in chronic pain because of a breach of OH&S. And so she sought damages from McDonald's. Contrary to how the story is told, she didn't ask for millions of dollars. Stella didn't ask for much at all, actually. All she wanted was $20,000 to cover her medical expenses, this is the United States, remember, and the lost wages for her daughter, who had to take a couple of weeks off work to look after her as she recovered. That's it. That's all she wanted. McDonald's responded that they'd give her $800. Final offer. Take it or leave it, but get the hell out. What would you do in that situation? So Stella and her legal team sued. 
they sued for $90,000. So that's the expenses, plus a little bit on the top for the slap in the face that McDonald's just gave her. Again, McDonald's told them to piss off. So they upped the price again, $300,000. I don't know how many of you have ever been sued or sued someone, but it's at this point that it's common for an independent mediator to be brought in and try to get everyone to agree to a settlement and prevent the courts from getting involved. And that's just what happened in this case. And here, the mediator looked over the case, looked at the evidence, and said to McDonald's lawyers, You guys are screwed. This is the best offer you're going to get. I suggest you take it. And once again, McDonald's swung their dicks around and said, See you in court. So the whole thing went to court, as the mediator predicted, and McDonald's got... Proper fucked. The jury found in favor of Stella Liebeck and awarded her $2.7 million in damages. $200,000 of that was in compensation for her injuries, and the rest of it was for being absolute arrogant dickwads. Because this was far from the first time that this had ever happened to McDonald's. They had form on the board. The jury arrived at the figure of $2.7 million because... At the time, that was how much money McDonald's made in a day just from coffee. So there's a little bit of karma in that. Now, because the law is an ass, Stella Liebeck never got the cool $2 million. After a very lengthy appeals process, the whole thing was bargained down to somewhere in the realm of half a million. The press got a hold of the story, and they only read the first paragraph of the court report, the $2.7 million part. They didn't read the rest of the report where the whole figure was taken down from $2.7 million to a more reasonable $500,000. And they definitely didn't read the part where the poor lady needed skin grafts on her buttocks and groin from the burns. They didn't run with these parts. They didn't want to. They had the story. And as it got picked up by more and more news outlets, Pretty soon, the only thing that anyone knew about this story was that someone had been awarded over $2 million for spilling coffee on themselves. It was idiot lotto. And McDonald's, of course, did everything they could to promote this fallacy. It was better for them that they were seen as the victims in this, unfairly hit with a frivolous lawsuit because some dumb shit couldn't pick up a coffee cup. Better that be in the news than the fact that they had a history of serving people a liquid firebomb and then offering an insultingly low settlement figure. Oh, poor McDonald's, so hard done by. And that's how we get to today, where people talk about idiot lawsuits without ever even entertaining the idea of looking further into the story. So you can begin to see how powerful the narrative is. The facts are there. The facts are always there. But the facts are not always obvious. They're not always told. They're not always welcome. And it can be very easy to spin the same facts in completely opposite directions to fit whatever agenda the storyteller fancies. You guys are lucky that my only agenda is to entertain you. I don't lie to you much, but I do expect you to have a healthy suspicion about everything I say. With all the coronavirus talk lately, how about we look back at the last pandemic? The last true pandemic. 
the Spanish flu of 1918 that killed millions of people worldwide. Where did the Spanish flu originate? Where was the first documented case of Spanish flu, patient zero of Spanish flu? Well, the first case of Spanish flu on record was in a favela on the outskirts of Barcelona in June 1918. Nah, I'm just kidding. A favela isn't even a Spanish thing. It just sounds right if you don't know what a favela is. The first documented case of Spanish flu was one Albert Gitchell, an army cook operating at Camp Funston in Kansas, USA, on March the 4th, 1918. Since this coincided with the US rollout of troops in the First World War, the virus had a VIP ticket to pretty much every major population center on Earth, courtesy of Uncle Sam. This thing spread faster than Gangnam Style. Open Gangnam Style! Gangnam Style! Open Gangnam Style! Now, during the First World War, Spain was a neutral country. They didn't have any skin in the game. And therefore, they were not subject to the oppressive military censorship of the press that most other nations were under at the time. And because of this, they were free to report on the pandemic. Other nations squelched any reports of the pandemic because it might hurt the war effort. Spain didn't have that. So they were allowed to actually talk about how bad it was. And this gave the impression that Spain was particularly hard hit by the virus and by transitive property, the epicenter of the virus. And that's how we get Spanish flu. It should have gone down in history as the American flu, but here we are, control of the narrative. As you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe this stuff now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Uh, it comes from China. The current virus originated in China, but it is hardest hitting in America, so maybe time is a flat circle. Which brings me to the point of, is there anything important being lied about right now? Is there anyone in the world creating a false narrative without a shred of evidence for their own benefit? Because that could be dangerous. Because if it snowballs enough, the lie itself won't even matter anymore. It will become the truth by sheer inertia. Especially if that lie had something to do with, I don't know, just for the sake of the argument, democracy or elections or some other crucial mechanism of freedom. Actually winning or losing doesn't matter. What matters is the story. Let's explore a historical example for contrast. Let's look at one of the most famous battles in history, the Battle of Marathon the heroic Greek confederation managing to turn back the endless hordes of the Persians against all odds. Marathon itself is an interesting exploration in the subject of framing the narrative. The Greek poets and historians, guys like Herodotus and Aeschylus, they portray it as a band of brave and indomitable warriors fighting against overwhelming odds for the very survival of civilization itself and then pushing this evil empire back from whence it came. And the mighty Persians were not so much beaten as they were humiliated and humbled. They had to slink all the way back to Mesopotamia with their tails between their legs. 
So humiliating was this defeat for the Persians that it was said that Darius the Great ordered a slave to whisper into his ear three times a day, Remember the Athenians! So that he would never forget this blow struck against him, this band of supermen who thwarted the invasion of the Hellenes. You can't go back there because the Greeks are too strong. And that is certainly a way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is this. Greece is a very, very long way away from Iran. Athens is at the absolute edge of what the Persians would have considered to be the known world. Their empire went as far as the subcontinent. If a modern country ends in Stan, it was probably part of Persia. The First Persian War was never about conquest or expansion. Persia was plenty big enough already. Why did they want to go to a lot of effort to conquer a do-nothing little peninsula at the arse end of the earth? The Persians just did not care. The only reason the Persians knew who the Athenians were was because some Athenian expats in Persia burned down a couple of important temples, and Darius was honour-bound by the gods to go to Greece and give them a spanking. It's kind of like how much thought do you give to the ants in your kitchen at any point during the day versus how much thought you give them when you find out they've been in your marmalade. Ant. Boot. There's a comparison that's been done to death, but it's been done to death for a reason. And that's that the Persian Empire operated more like a corporation than anything else. Money was key, and all of their decisions make a lot of sense when you look at it with a business eye rather than an imperial one. Shareholder expectations need to be met, profit needs to be made, losses need to be minimized, as opposed to, we're the best, let's go conquer everyone. A perfectly valid reason why the Persians withdrew from Marathon and didn't persist with their assault on Athens was because it simply wasn't cost-effective for them anymore. Their profit margins were getting eaten up. Why should we be here burning time and money supplying this army at the arse end of the earth when we could be not doing that? To put it bluntly, while the Greeks saw themselves as the center of the universe, and this battle was the most important thing in history to them, it barely registered on the Persian radar. It's just another day to them. They did not give a shit. The day bison graced your village was the most important day of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. One could make the argument far more convincingly that Darius ordered his slave to remind him of the Athenians three times a day because without being reminded of that at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, he might have actually forgotten that the Greeks even existed. History is lenticular. It changes depending on which angle you look at it. I'll do another demonstration, and this time I'll use a narrative that we all know well. We all know Star Wars, right? Even if you somehow have not seen Star Wars, and if you haven't, go and give yourself an uppercut right now. I'm sorry. I don't like you either. You know the story. Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan, Han Solo, Princess Leia, they could blow up the Death Star, the Wookiee doesn't get a medal. We all know how the story goes. It's the classic Campbell hero's journey story. But, 
Couldn't one also argue that Star Wars is the tale of a young, naive farmer from a desert region who is radicalized by a militant religious extremist, links up with a people smuggler to cross a military checkpoint, joins a terrorist organization, and then blows up a government facility. That's lenticular Star Wars. Great shot, kid! That was one in a million! And we begin to see how important it is to frame the narrative, to make sure that your version of the truth is the one that makes it into the annals of history. It doesn't even need to be true, it just needs to be the one that people talk about, the story that people retell. There's the truth and the truth. Christopher Columbus was never trying to prove that the Earth was round instead of flat. Everyone knew the Earth was round. Eratosthenes had proven that thousands of years ago with nothing more than a stick, and he got within a percentage point of the actual size of the Earth which is still really damn impressive. Columbus disagreed with the methodology that Aristophanes used. He had his own alternative facts that he used, and he was convinced that there was no way that the planet could be that large, and that everyone was just buying into the Big Earth conspiracy. Columbus thought that the Earth was only about a third of the size that it actually is. And that's what his expedition was really about. He wanted to prove to all the big earthers how wrong they were. And here's the thing. Because Christopher Columbus was famously such a massive dickwad, the Spanish court basically said, fine, here's a few ships, go out there and kill yourself. Luckily for Columbus, and unluckily for the rest of the world, he ran into a continent that he previously had not known about. And so, Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas. About 500 years after Leif Erikson built a beach house there, but, you know, good for him. As an aside, Columbus is one of the most horrible monsters in all of human history. He was a truly detestable, vile, wicked, evil human being. What he did in the Americas over the course of his life makes Adolf Hitler look like a saint in comparison. Columbus would have looked at Hitler and said that those were rookie numbers. I pumped those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. Columbus was of the opinion that you don't just exterminate entire peoples. You need to have a bit of fun with them first. You have to get yourself a harem of sex slaves and then torture them into submission and if any of the natives decides that they don't want to work to death in the mines for no money anymore, you decide that you're going to cut off everyone's hands and noses and then make everyone wear those hands and noses as a necklace. We have no historical evidence either way that Hitler enjoyed creating the Holocaust. We know he did it, but we don't know whether he liked it. But what we do know is that Christopher Columbus was having a grand old time. Because we've got his diaries, and they are page after page of woke up this morning to another day of industrial level raping, mutilating, murder, and slavery. God, I love my job. I guess one of the takeaways here is that if you're going to be a horrible person, do one really big thing so that history will remember that. Like how we all remember Charles Lindbergh as an aviator and not a baby-killing Nazi, 
and how we remember Samuel Morse for creating Morse code and not for his political career, which was built on his belief that the Pope was secretly planning to use the Austro-Hungarian army to invade Virginia. Yep, that one's real. Sometimes you don't even need facts. You don't need to base the story in anything. Sometimes it's pure fiction, pure narrative, and it takes on a life of its own. It becomes its own sort of fact, even though there was no basis in reality whatsoever to begin with. Emperors like Caligula and Nero are synonymous with depraved, debauched, wickedly unchecked absolute power. I mean, Caligula was so crazy that he made his horse a senator. Maybe. I mean, we know that Caligula did make his horse a senator. The horse's name was Incatatus, and there's a record of it in the Senate. But, maybe Caligula made his horse a senator as a sort of mockery of the institution of the Senate, that Caligula disrespected the Senate so much that he thought his horse could do a better job than senators. If you take the stories about Caligula at face value, he does come off as a dangerously insane madman but how much nuance have we lost over the centuries? Could there have been something else at play there? It makes me wonder if historians in the future will have a similar inability to grasp subtext, and maybe one day they'll be recounting the story of the, the bold, insane, and totally face-value Kazakhstani journalist, Borat. Nice! We all know that Nero started the great fire of Rome and then fiddled as it burned. We all know that story. Except that the fiddle wouldn't be invented until a few centuries later. And Nero wasn't even in Rome at the time. When Nero heard about the great fire of Rome, he raced back to the city and he helped fight the fires himself. The historian Tacitus, who was a contemporary, recounts of how proactive Nero was, of seeing Nero at the firefront with a bucket of water doing what he could. And yet there's this image of Nero gleefully playing music while the city burned. So how did we get to the modern idea of these emperors being insane? Nero and Caligula were part of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And later emperors, they were not. The Julio part of Julio-Claudian dynasty is important because that's the bloodline of Caesar Augustus, the goat. Caesar Augustus was, is, and forever will be the greatest Roman emperor, and everyone wanted a little bit of that on him. And if they couldn't get that, they'd have to settle for the next best thing. It was in the best interests of later emperors, the ones who were not directly related to Augustus, to show how far the bloodline had fallen and how much better off Rome was with the Julio-Claudians gone. Most of the accounts we have of the depravity of Caligula and Nero come from the writer Suetonius in his work The Twelve Caesars. Suetonius was a personal historian for the emperor Trajan. Trajan was not a Julio-Claudian. Trajan was a fine emperor, sure, but he wasn't a relative of Caesar. Trajan had a bit of a legitimacy deficit. So Suetonius, he did his best to pump up the image of Trajan. And Suetonius did a hatchet job on the facts. And his work, The Twelve Caesars, 
at times it plunges into outright lies. Suetonius wasn't above just making shit up. And yet, this account is the one that remains. The Twelve Caesars was long regarded as an objective catalogue of actual events. Suetonius may have made most of it up, but he told us he was telling the truth, and for two millennia, people believed him. Some people still do. And it had, effectively, as much historical accuracy as the film Gladiator. Shadows and grass, Maximus! Fact doesn't matter. Framing the narrative does. And it's because of that control that most people remember Nero as a lunatic for starting a fire in a city he ruled while he wasn't there, for callously playing music during the blaze that he actually helped fight on an instrument that hadn't been invented yet. You don't need the truth. You don't even need crumbs of truth. You don't need a scintilla, a quantum of actual fact in order to create a narrative that everyone repeats. An example, another story. You know the story. You've all heard the story. This is a story about a certain famous actor. This actor is famous for doing romantic comedies. You know the guy. You know who I'm talking about. He's famous for acting, sure, but this actor, he's even more famous because he does a certain thing with a certain kind of animal in a certain part of the body. You know who I'm talking about. You guys know exactly who and what I'm talking about, in explicit detail. I gave no details, but you all know all the details. And here's the only fact that we have about that story, the only bit of objective truth. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that this person ever did that thing with that animal. It's pure fiction. We all know the details of something that never happened. There's a lot of power in controlling the narrative. By controlling the narrative, you can warp reality. Facts are one thing, but how you convey those facts is another. Events might have occurred in a certain way, but history will remember how those events were told. Look at someone like Alexander III of Macedon. He was a lunatic. He was a psychopath. He met many of the modern definitions of insanity. He was deranged. He was delusional, megalomaniacal. He was a terminal alcoholic. So many people died by his hand or by his order that he would probably look at Christopher Columbus's numbers and call them rookie numbers. And yet, do we call him... Alexander the Genocidal? Alexander the Alcoholic? Alexander the Terrible? No. He's known as Alexander the Great. Did he conquer Persia and wipe out the Persians? Or did he liberate the oppressed Ionian Greeks? Well, factually, both. It all depends on how you frame it. After 2,000 years of Chinese whispers, we remember him as one of the greatest human beings that ever lived. When Alexander campaigned, and especially in Persia, he famously took with him what can only be described as embedded journalists. Alexander knew of his own importance in history. He was a megalomaniac, remember. He truly believed that he was a demigod, 
and so he went to great pains to always have people around that would just write down everything he did. And these people, if they wanted to keep their heads attached to their shoulders, they wrote down everything in a rather favorable light. That's how you control the narrative. The same lenticular treatment can be given to individual figures. Take someone like Albert Einstein, for instance. Albert Einstein is synonymous with being super intelligent. We literally use his name as an eponymous adjective to denote intelligence. We even use it sarcastically to denote someone's lack of intelligence. Like, hey, look at this Einstein over here. Look what he did. But why Einstein? Is he truly the smartest man in history? Why not Archimedes or Newton or Goss or Michael Faraday, who was so incredibly poor in a bad time to be poor? He basically invented electricity and magnetism and did it all as an impoverished Charles Dickens figure who was functionally illiterate. Why not him? Why not John von Neumann, the man who Albert Einstein considered to be the smartest man of all time? Why Einstein? Well, Einstein sort of had the dice roll his way. I'm not suggesting that Einstein wasn't one of the smartest people of all time. He most certainly was. Let there be no doubt, Albert Einstein was one of the most intelligent people who has ever lived. But why did his name, more than any other, become a synonym for super genius? A lot of elements lined up. Einstein was a larger-than-life character. That makes him easy to market. The accent, the hair, the aloof, shabby scientist look. Einstein is the kind of guy you'd imagine if you were thinking about what a genius looked like. Einstein also had something of a mystique about him. He had a talent for developing complex theories like relativity seemingly out of the ether. While other scientists would come up with a basic principle and then build upon that and develop it, Einstein would kind of have a flash of inspiration and then just say something like, oh yeah, I just thought about how a guy falling off the roof of a house would experience weightlessness and all of his belongings would fall at the same rate he did, which made me think about how space and time are actually the same thing and entirely dependent on your frame of reference. And then I came up with a formula to prove it. Einstein's big break was the famous Annus Mirabilis, his papers from 1905. In 1905, Einstein published papers on the photoelectric effect, Brownian motion, special relativity, and mass-energy equivalents, all in the same year. That's a big year. When you basically break known physics four times in the same year, you get a bit of free publicity. But finally, and crucially, Einstein was an outspoken German Jew in the United States at a time when Germany wasn't too keen on Jews and the rest of the world wasn't too keen on Germany. Again, this is a lot of free press. Of course, luck is a fortune and you have to be talented enough to capitalize on that luck, but Albert Einstein had plenty of both and that's why he's the go-to man for intelligence. Controlling the narrative can swing the other way as well. Agnès Gonja Boyajou, there's no way I've got that right. I'll use her more common name of Mother Teresa, is a synonymous eponym for caring, kindness, philanthropy, charity, 
Mother Teresa is quite literally a saint. She was canonized. And yet, but for the grace of God, as it were, in another time and place, she would have made a fantastic Nazi. Mother Teresa had close ties to several fascist and totalitarian dictatorships. Criminal syndicates, high-profile fraudsters. Uh, Mother Teresa herself was accused of money laundering. Nobody really knows where all of the millions of dollars donated to Mother Teresa have gone, but she sure as shit didn't spend it on treating sick people. The secrets of her embezzlement went to hell with her. Mother Teresa did things like conducting forced baptisms on everyone under her care, regardless of their own religion or wishes. She even baptized people post-mortem. And when I say people under her care, what I mean is people left in her charge. She most certainly did not care for the sick. Mother Teresa was a cruel and despicable sadist. Her facilities had a 40% mortality rate. The odds of surviving in one of Mother Teresa's hospices was slightly better than a coin flip. There are affidavits from humanitarian workers testifying against her, and they told of how nurses were ordered to wash and reuse needles, even after use on patients with highly infectious diseases like tuberculosis or AIDS. Teresa was offered numerous times modern equipment to help mitigate this problem, and she repeatedly turned it away. Medicine was kept on the shelves long past expiration dates and still administered to patients. People suffering from terminal cancer were given no painkillers stronger than an aspirin because Mother Teresa considered that their suffering was the will of God, and she didn't want to interfere with the divine plan. I'll quote Mother Teresa directly here. There is something beautiful in seeing the poor accept their lot, to suffer it like Christ's passion. The world gains much from their suffering. End quote. What a nice little lady. It needs to be said that Mother Teresa herself was fitted with a pacemaker. To what, I don't know, because she certainly didn't have a heart. In 1997, she suffered simultaneously from malaria, pneumonia, and heart failure, which she bore stoically like Christ in his passion. Nah, I'm just kidding. She was in a top-of-the-line palliative care unit with clean needles and all the morphine she could dream of. It's funny how often that whole do-unto-others part of the Bible gets ignored when it's your own skin in the game. And yet, we say that someone caring or charitable is like a Mother Teresa we should be using her name to describe a monster. It's all in how you spin it. It's all in who controls the narrative. Was Napoleon Bonaparte a midget? Did Nero fiddle while Rome burned? Did Scott Morrison shit himself at Engadine Mackers in 1997? It all depends on which set of lies we agree upon. It should be stated that this show is not the show that I had intended to do. I've had one on the back burner for a while, and it's never really had a chance to get out there in the world. And I guess it's kind of because I'm still a comic at heart. And the rule of comedy is that comedy is tragedy times distance. And in the current global climate, 
I'm having trouble finding enough distance on certain topics, which is something I think we need to be aware of moving forward and each do our own little part to make the world a better place so that I can finally pump out shows on heavy subject matter without jabbing anyone's wounds. If you like the show, please spread the word. Uh, You can like it, subscribe it, leave a review if you can. All of those things really, really help me with the algorithm, and the algorithm is key. So as much as I hate doing the call to action, and as much as you guys hate liking and subscribing, those things really do work. Welcome to the suck. If you'd like to know more, you can always find me at smirkfromhome.com. That's where we keep all of our projects. Uh, you can also find History Go Time on all of the regular social medias, slash History Go Time, except Twitter. That place is a cesspool, and I won't go anywhere near it. Smoke From Home partner Jacques Barrett has recently released his own podcast. It's called Quite the Pickle. I think you guys might be interested in it, in which Jacques and Emma Zammett find themselves in a pickle every week and try and get themselves out of it. So do check that out. It's quite fun. And finally, on a weird note to end a show, I'd like to pay my respects to one Dave Jory. Dave sadly passed away last week, and he's one of the best comedians I've seen, and a very good person too, and I pride myself on not being an emotional person, and this one's really rocked me. Dave Jory was a great comedian, and he was even better off stage. His observational wit cut like a scalpel. Some of his savage observations still linger with me, and the world is truly the worst for his passing. I'll never forget the day that Dave passed on to me the torch of being that comic that always wears a suit, and it's served me well over the years, and maybe I can honour his memory by doing such. Farley, Dave, you'll be missed.